So Revelation chapter 4. So uh, we, we kicked this up. We kicked this off last week. And uh, Russ kicked it off for us. And um, it's, a, it's a different type of book to go through for Advent. It's not what you typically think of. Um, just a, a peek inside my head. Here's how we got there. Um, I was listening to something, and, and they were talking about Revelation chapter 12. And they said, that's basically Christmas on the cosmic level. And I went, ding, I want to preach on Revelation 12 for Christmas Eve. And then it was, well, can we do some other stuff from Revelation? Okay, so here we are, right? All because on Christmas Eve, I want to preach from Revelation 12. So for a Christmas Eve service, it'll be Revelation 12. There'll be the traditional stuff, but we're going to talk about the cosmic Christmas as well briefly. And so um, we're just taking snapshots as we go through the, these Sundays in Advent. And um, Revelation is one of those books that has long had a history of being intimidating, and it doesn't need to be. And, and, and honestly, it, it's really not. We make it more intimidating than it needs to be. Now, as, as Russ mentioned last week, Revelation is an apocalyptic book. The Greek word behind that is apocalypsis. We see that all the time. It just simply means revealing. And I'm, I'm going to show you some places this morning where, we, where we, we see that coming up. And that's where then the Latin word translated that, and then we got our title, Revelation. And, and all it's really about is a revealing of a mystery. And, and the mystery is, is not like a, um, a... I used to read the Hardy Boys or not, I went through all of them. It's, yes? Great books, yeah. Uh, I never got into Nancy Drew. I liked the Hardy Boys. Um, but it's not like that kind of mystery. It's not like, well, if we put this piece together, then it leads us to this piece, then it leads us to this piece, and we might solve the mystery. See, that's what we tend to treat this book like. But that's not what it's about. It's about God, the holder of all things, revealing to us the things that he has not previously revealed. And that's the book of Revelation. It's a, a revealing. And, and so when we talk about revelation in general, we talk about God revealing things about himself to us. And one of the primary ways we have that is the written scripture, right? God inspired uh, human authors to write in such a way where they wrote exactly what God wanted them to write while not losing their personality, right? And so they wrote the exact things that God would want them to write because the Holy Spirit was guiding them. And so we have a revelation from God, right? But also God continues to reveal himself, right? But maybe not on the same level of authority as scripture, but God is a God who continues to reveal himself. Anytime that I learn something new about how God has revealed himself, God is revealing himself to me, right? Anytime that God helps me to see something that I could not see apart from him enabling me to do so, God's revealing himself. And so we might refer to that as revelation as well, right? This word has a, has a, has a broad group of meanings. But in the book, it's about a specific thing that God has revealed about himself. Apocalypsis, a revealing of a mystery. That's where the, the name comes from, and that's what this book's about. Now, um, as Russ also mentioned last week, it's, it's, it's an apocalyptic genre. Not, not unique. There was lots of other books written like this in our Old Testament. Daniel, Ezekiel, for instance. We're going to look at both of those this morning. And the time period between your Old Testament and your New Testament, sometimes we'll call that the Second Temple period. We don't have anything in our Bibles from those, in the Protestant Bibles. We don't have anything in the Protestant Bibles from that time period, but there's plenty of books and letters written during that time period that we have. We, we've looked at one back in 2020 briefly. Um, the, the letter of First Enoch, for instance, was one of those. It's an apocalyptic genre. It, it means it has a lot of symbols, and it's describing things that are maybe on a more cosmic level oftentimes. 
And symbols are always meant to help the, the, write, or the reader or the listener to understand what's being talked about. And so oftentimes when we talk about heavenly things, we can't adequately describe he heavenly things. We, we don't really get it. And so we put um, earthly symbols to it so that we can understand heavenly cosmic type things. That's the book. It, it's, it's describing heavenly things and giving us a, a peek behind the curtain into the heavenly realm, and it's using symbols to do so, right? So apocalyptic literature is just, it's highly symbolic, and symbols are meant to mean something. And so when, when a book is written, the symbols are utilized, and those symbols have meanings to the people that book or letter is being written to. Got to keep that in mind too, right? Because this is also a letter. And so John is writing to these seven churches the things that Jesus has, has revealed to him, right? But he's writing to seven churches who are anchored in history, anchored in a culture. And he's using symbols that had to have made sense to them. And so when we come to this book, we cannot come away with something that would have made no sense to them. Right? It, it can't be taking symbols and applying what we think they mean today or in the future. It had to have meaning to them in order for this book to make any sense. Because John's writing this book, this letter, as an encouragement to Christians who are being persecuted. To Christians who are either currently being persecuted or they're going to be persecuted. And this book was written, this letter was written to encourage them to press on in the face of that persecution. How meaningless it would be if John wrote this book in such a way where these symbols meant nothing to the people he wrote it to, and they were left going, wow, that sounds fantastic, but what does it mean? John oftentimes throughout this letter will say, let the reader understand. In other words, the people he was writing to in that day would have understood what John was trying to help them see. So we cannot detach the symbols from the culture and the context, otherwise it has no meaning. Right? And so it's, a, it's, a, it's apocalyptic, it uses symbols, but those symbols have meaning, and earthly symbols help us understand heavenly things. And, and we're, we're, we're used to this, by the way. Um, it's, it's not new in the Bible. For instance, um, the tabernacle, the temple, um, the Sabbath day, right? These are, these are examples of things that later on we find out they're not really the point. The tabernacle is not the point. The temple's not the point. The, the Sabbath day rest is not the point. Those are all ultimately pointing to something greater, right? And ultimately, those things that I just mentioned to you, those are fulfilled in Christ. Those things point us to Christ. So they're earthly things, earthly symbols that help us understand heavenly realities. That's what this book is filled with, right? And then they're filled with symbols that would have made sense to the people of that day. The, the third thing I want to put before you and Russ, again, mentioned this last week, is he went to Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to look at Daniel today. We're going to look at Ezekiel. We're going to look at Isaiah, right? You cannot, hear me, you cannot accurately understand or interpret the book of Revelation if you don't do so in light of the Old Testament. You cannot. Because more than half of this book of Revelation either quotes or alludes to Old Testament scriptures. So much so that if John was submitting this letter to his professor or his teacher, his English teacher, the teacher would mark it up and say, that's a failing grade because you plagiarized. There's so much here that John is just pulling either straight out of the Old Testament or alluding to in the Old Testament. There's no way that you can come to the book of Revelation and try to understand it without knowing and understanding your Old Testament. 
So is there value in your Old Testament? Absolutely there's value in your Old Testament. Is, is this, does this mean we got to work a bit? Yeah. But the Bible doesn't lend its fruit to lazy people, right? The book of Revelation is not meant to, for, for devotional uh, one verse at a time reading. It's meant for reading in chunks and understanding where did this come from. Now, for the people who it was written to, they wouldn't have had to study so much as we would have because we also have a cultural gap we've got to overcome, right? There's thousands of years of difference now. Right? But those three things, and I put that all before you because we're not going through the whole book. And I'm hoping that you're reading through this. And I'm hoping that it's going to whet an appetite for you to dig deeper into it. And so I lay those things before you as, as parameters, as guardrails, if you will, for how you should approach this book. How you should approach this letter. All right? And so we're going to be in, in chapter 4 this morning. Here's where we're going. The, the, the Lord uh, told his followers how to pray. He said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever wondered what that looks like? What does it look like for God's kingdom to come, God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Do you, do you ever picture like what's going on in heaven as this is unfolding on earth? That's what we get for the next several chapters. We're going to look at chapter 4 this week, chapter 5 this week. But this is what you get all the way through at least chapter 19 is the heavenly picture of what's going on in heaven as things unfold on earth. And so John's writing to these people, and in chapter 1 he had said, hey, I'm going to tell you the things that must soon come about. And so what we get this heavenly picture is what's going on in heaven as things would be unfolding on the earth. All right? So here's what we're going to go with Revelation chapter 4 this morning. The posture of the people of God toward God is worship of God. I hope you see a repeating word in that. The posture of the people of God toward God is worship of God. And so as, as, I, as I'm going through chapter 4, what I'm, what I'm hoping you're going to see is, how should I, as a believer in Christ, maybe I'm experiencing some persecution, maybe I'm experiencing some pressure, maybe I'm suffering in some way, maybe I'm going through a struggle, how do I orient my life properly so that I can persevere through this? The posture of the people of God toward God is worship of God. So Revelation chapter 4. Let's take a look, verse 1. After this, I looked and I behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So, John is now moving into a second vision in this book. Right? So he's had one, he's on this island of Patmos, he's, he's exiled on this island, and he's taken up into the spirit, we'll talk about that in a minute, right? and, and he sees this vision, and the first vision largely consists of these letters that, that John was to write down directly from Jesus that were going to be then given to the seven churches that he, he identified. And that has just completed at the end of chapter 3. And so now we're, we're moving past that vision and we're going to another. The book of Revelation is filled with John seeing or hearing different things. And that's how you track through the book is, is what, where are we when he's seeing something. It's not so much about chronology as it is what did John hear or see next. Not necessarily what happens next, it's what did he hear or see next. 
And so when he says, after this, he's simply telling us, after Jesus revealed to me the letters, the things that he wanted me to say to these seven churches, after that vision, then I looked. Right? So not necessarily an unfolding of historical events and chronology here. Right? Just, here's what I saw next. After this, I looked. And behold, a door standing in heaven. So he sees an opening up in heaven, and he hears the same voice that he heard earlier, the voice of Jesus, speaking to me like a trumpet. And Jesus says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, that second time he says after this, it's hard to find context for that. Does he mean after after the letters he just read? Well, that's what this after this meant. So what does he mean when he says, I must show you the things that must take place after this? Because if you read through the letters, there's not necessarily a time marker in there where you can go and say, oh, it's after that event happened. This is, this is one of the first places we're going to go to this morning where I'm going to tell you this is why we have to know our Old Testament or we have to have a guide helping us to see the Old Testament uh, allusions. Now, if you have a good Bible, a good study Bible, or a good non-study Bible, it should have footnotes. It should have superscripts, little A's or little numbers or something, and, or cross-references in the middle of your page where it's saying, hey, it's, it might point you to Daniel chapter 2, or it might point you to Matthew chapter 24, or something like that. That's the, the, the translators of that particular version of your Bible, or that, that edition of the the, the publication, right, where they're saying, hey, this reminds us of this, or this might be an illusion here. Track those down. Follow those and go see what's there. I want to show you Daniel chapter 2, because I think this after this is tied to Daniel chapter 2. So here in Daniel chapter 2, this is one of the places where uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the ruler of Babylon at the time, gets a vision, and it's a statue. Different parts, different metals make up the statue. He can't figure it out. And none of his wise men can figure it out either. And so they're all put under a death penalty because if they can't figure it out and someone can't come first tell him the dream, he doesn't even tell them the dream. He says, I want you to tell me what the content of my dream was and then interpret it for me. That's how I, how I know you're not making this up. And all his wise men kept saying to him, Nebuchadnezzar, just tell us the dream. And he says, no. If you have the, the interpretation, you'll be able to tell me the dream. And nobody can do it, so they're put under a death curse. Uh, Daniel, who is a Jewish person taken into exile in Babylon at this time, hears about this as the captain of the guard comes and he's communicating this. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can you go tell the king, give me a, give me a, a day or so. Let me pray about this and, and we'll get an interpretation to him. And so God, fast forwarding, God gives Daniel the content of the dream and the interpretation of the dream. So Daniel's now standing before the king, and he says, king, here's what your dream consisted of. And he describes the dream exactly. And then he starts to tell him what the dream meant. So let's look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals, by the way, I highlighted that because Daniel is written in two languages. He's written in Hebrew and Aramaic. It's not written in Greek originally, but there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. Your New Testament was written in Greek. Apocalypsis. 
Remember me talking about that? Apocalypsis. That's the word where we get the title for the book of Revelation. That's God revealing something. Same word. Daniel's talking about the same thing. I'm trying to help you see how this is all connected. In heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Key phrase. Future to Daniel's time, but John's unfolding those visions then in his time. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. When's after this? The latter days. And he who reveals, again, apocalypsis, mysteries, made known to you what is to be. I think what John is doing intentionally is he's taking Daniel's vision of what's going to happen in the latter days which he also calls after this. And then back in, in, in um, verse 1, Jesus says, I will show you what must take place after this. We're in the latter days, Jesus is saying. The days that Daniel talked about. Now the vision that Daniel described was of four kingdoms. Right? Starting with Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. And he talked about the overthrow of each of those kingdoms, ultimately leading to this fourth kingdom that was different from all others, which he describes at that time it was still future, the, the kingdom of Rome. Right? In John's day, it was current. But what, what Daniel's vision was that then there was going to be the stone cut out of a mountain that was not cut by human hands that was going to come and overthrow that Roman kingdom, that fourth kingdom. And then from that day on, that kingdom, that stone, which is God's kingdom, would grow in its influence and power and no other kingdom would stand or overthrow it. That was future to Daniel's day but now Jesus is telling John, I'm going to show you the things that must happen after this. He's saying to him, I'm going to show you the things that Daniel was talking about that was future. That's now going to be unfolding. All right. Let's keep going. Verse 2. Verse 2. At once I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on a throne. So he did this in, in chapter 1. And he's doing it again. I was in the spirit. What does that mean? Likely that he went into a trance, right? Like, like Peter in, in Acts chapter 10, he, he, was, he was in a vision and he had a vision, right? But we were told he was put into a deep sleep. So in your Bible and in ancient Near Eastern times, this is ways God reveals visions. One, in a dream. God would reveal a vision to someone who's sleeping. That's called a dream, right? We have that filled throughout the Bibles. Or someone might get a vision from God while they're awake. And in the Bible, that's called a vision, Right? So if it says it's a dream, the person's sleeping when God reveals the vision. If it's a vision, the guy is awake when God reveals the vision and still functional. So the, the, the person may be going about their daily activities and they have a vision while they're going about it. And then there's a trance. The trance-like state is exactly what probably comes to your mind when you think about it. The person's more immobilized, they, they kind of go into a trance, and the vision is revealed to them. I think that's what he's doing here. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of mystery to it. It's just the way he's describing, I was in the spirit. A trance-like state. God does that. God, God does reveal himself through dreams and through visions. And we see places where he, he puts people in a trance so that they can, they can be stationary, so that they can receive all that is being given to them. I was in the spirit. He went into, likely, a trance. And behold, a throne stood in heaven. Now, I'm going to highlight a few things because he's... He's in, he's, he's in that heaven place now, right? He saw that, that door to heaven open up, and he's now seeing visions of what's through that door. And he sees a throne. 
Now, there's going to be several things I'm going to show you in Revelation 4, and then I'm going to pause us, and then we're going to go back to some Old Testament stuff. Because I'm going to, I want you to see, this is not new. So he says, I see a throne. It stood in heaven. And there's someone seated on the throne. Verse 3. Verse 3, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. We're going to keep going. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So let's pause for a moment and, and, and talk through just a few of these things. So he sees the throne. There's someone seated on the throne. Now, I'm not going to take us to Daniel 7 today. I'm going to do that next week. But this comes right out of Daniel 7. And he says, and around the throne, there's 24 other thrones. And seated on those thrones are 24 elders. Who are the 24 elders? Okay, apocalyptic literature is big on numbers. Now, don't, we don't get crazy with them and, and assign what we think the numbers need to mean. There's, there's historical references that help us to understand what numbers meant for people. And, and then throughout the scripture, we can see this happening. We'll talk about seven in just a moment. But here we've got 24. 12 and 12, right? And when I say 12 and 12, if you know your Old Testament, your New Testament, you're thinking two things. You're thinking 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles. Those are the key significant groups of 12s in the Bible, right? I think that's exactly what John is seeing. Either angels or individuals who represent these 12 apostles or 12 um, tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Now, why them, though? Because the 12 tribes of Israel, they were the called out people of God. The 12 apostles, why? Because they are the called out people of God and they represent the called out people of God. And so with the 24, you've got the totality of the called out people of God. The Old Testament people and the New Testament. Or another way to look at that is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And they're represented here around the throne. And they're, and they're, and they're, they're called elders, and then they, they're said to have golden crowns. They're rulers. And then you should be thinking, wait a minute, Jesus told us about this, how those who believe in him will be co-heirs with him. Oh, Jesus is a king. Oh, wait a minute. Jesus is not only called a king, he's called the king of kings. And so here, we're seeing this throne room, and we're seeing these other kings, these 24, and in chapter 5, you're going to see Jesus as the king, right? But here's the, the kings, the, the called out people of God, the covenant people of God surrounding the throne, represented by the 24 elders, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. They're clothed in white garments. Why would they be in white garments? Because they've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 5 is going to tell us this. These are covenant people of God being represented here. All right? In this throne room. In this, in this heavenly picture. Right? And so this is not something future for John so much. He's, he's seeing it now in that moment. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you some things that are going to take place. And so he's taken to this, this throne room. And you're going to see things unfold in this throne room in heaven that are going to soon unfold for John and his people on earth, right? You've got 24 elders. Let's keep going. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay, pause for a moment. Again, 
We, we've seen that phrase, seven spirits of God, chapter one also. But you see fire, you see lightning. Hold that all in your mind. We're about to go to the Old Testament for, for a, a, a few minutes. Thunder, right? You see burning seven torches, and, and, and we're told the seven torches are the seven spirits of God. Seven is a common number with great significance and meaning. In six days, God created the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. Why? Because everything was completed. It was all fulfilled. Seven in the Bible is about completion. It's about fulfillment. It's about fullness. The seven spirits of God is a reference to the Holy Spirit in its fullness, right? Its completeness, his perfection. But let me show you something in Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Then shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Okay, this is a prophecy written several hundred years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene talking about Jesus. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now let's count together how many spirit descriptions there are here. Same spirit, but let's ha- talk, count how many times he's described differently. The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. The seven spirits of God. But this is just, that's not seven of them. This is just describing the same Holy Spirit. But it's rooted in an Old Testament description. John is, is, is seeing things that have already been talked about, but Jesus is helping him to see. That's this Spirit. We've talked about this Spirit. All throughout the Old Testament, God has revealed this Spirit and what this Spirit would do. The seven Spirits of God. All right, let's keep going. Verse 6. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. It's just calm. Now, all throughout Scripture and in ancient Near Eastern, and when I say ancient Near Eastern, I mean the, the tribes, the countries, the nations, the peoples that existed in that time and before. So think of like your history where you learned about the Mesopotamian civilizations and ancient Babylon and ancient Greece and Egypt and and all those. These are people that were contemporary around that time and we call them the ancient Near Eastern uh, cultures, right? When they would talk about seas, water, large bodies of water, usually those large bodies of water were enemies of the hero in their story because those large bodies of water represented chaos. And you think about it from their experience, right? From their experience, not modern, scientifically advanced in their mind, they walk over to a beach and all they see is the vastness of the ocean and there's nothing beyond that. It's the end of the world. And, and what they see is the sea is crashing onto the shore. And, and when the storm's happening and they find themselves in a boat, they, they find themselves being tossed about. They don't know what's underneath the sea. They didn't have submarines. Right? All they know is under the sea, that's the place of the dead. That's where people go when they die, and if you go down deep enough, you'll find the gates of Hades down there. Right? And so it was, it was representative of uh, those that oppose the good character. Right? And here in the throne room of God, you've got this sea of glass like crystal. It's calm. It's peaceful. There's no opposition to God. There's no chaos. There's only order. This is God's throne room. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in behind. And this is where it just gets weird, right? 
<laughs> okay, good. I heard y'all go, yeah, yeah. But it's not new, right? All right. Let me show you. Let me, let me go a little further, and we're going to show you where this comes from. Let's look at these creatures. Verse 7. Verse 7, full of eyes, right? The first living creature is like a lion. The second living creature is like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Okay, those are the descriptions of what, what he sees their faces look like. All right, let's take a look. Pause for a moment. The stuff we've just seen is very similar to what we find in Ezekiel chapter 1. In Ezekiel chapter 1, this prophet who also was living at the same time as Daniel and who also was in Babylon in captivity with Daniel. So they're seeing visions from God while they're not in the land, not in Israel. The temple has been destroyed. Okay? They're seeing visions. What, what John sees, he says, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. Now, if you go back to what we've seen in Revelation on the throne, we've seen different pictures of fire and lightning and thunder, right? And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of, how, uh, oh, four living creatures. Like, this sounds so similar, we cannot ignore it, right? And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, Right? And so he goes on, we jumped a few verses, and in verse 10 he gives us their faces. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face, the face of a lion. On the right side and the four had the face of an ox. On the left side and the four had the face of an eagle. Those are the same animals we just saw in Revelation chapter 1. This is a deliberate looking back at Ezekiel's vision, but with some additional details. This is deliberate. Same throne room. Now, Ezekiel's writing a prophecy, and he's going to be writing about the judgment that is coming upon the people of Israel. The book of Revelation, in large part, is about judgment that's coming on unbelieving Israel. There's, there's no doubt it's intentional, the similarities that are being seen here. Because the same God who saves those who believe in him also judges those who do not believe. And in Revelation, you have both. And so we, we see this. Now, um, I was going to make a comment here about some of the fire and stuff like that. So as you read this, it should be bringing back into your mind things like um, Exodus, where God revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush, right? Fire. Or as Moses was on top of Mount Sinai, where he went to get the Ten Commandments and the law, right? The, the, the presence of God settled on the top of the mountain in a cloud, and you can, you can see it talks about there's lightning, and they can hear thunder and stuff, right? Fire, lightning, thunder. As Israel's being led through the wilderness, they were led by a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. This is so clearly the Lord, right? But you would get this. You would, if you're reading. You don't have to have all these Old Testament imageries to understand that this is the throne room of God. But what's significant for us is as we go and we see this is something God has already revealed to his people, but at that time in the Old Testament, he was saying, hey, this is still coming, right? He even told Daniel at the end of Daniel's book, seal this up because it's for a time in the future. But he's telling John some of the same things, but he doesn't tell John to seal it up. Why? because it's not so far in the future, right? All right, let's keep going. By the way, um, significance of the different faces, um, best suggestion I came across was human, king of all creation, lion, king of the beasts, ox, king of domesticated animals, uh, eagle, king of the air, animals. Cool, sounds great. I, 
There's more significance. You can tie that to, to representations of different nations, perhaps. But, but uh, the point is, I'm trying to make this morning, just see the, see the similarities. All right, we keep going. Here's Ezekiel still, a little further down in chapter 1. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, appearance of fire. So fire, fire, fire. And there was brightness around him. Now look at 28. I hope you caught the reference in Revelation 1 to a rainbow. And in Revelation, it looked like an emerald. The appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. Can we say that's a rainbow? Okay, right? So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Same stuff. Same stuff. All right. Let's keep going. Verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. By the way, full of eyes, uh, again, best suggestion someone, someone I saw said was um, it just represents the all-omnipotence of God, the all-seeing, right? That there's nothing hidden from God. Cool. Sounds good. Right? We, can, we can dig more into that. I'm sure there's significance if we dug into the literature of that day. But for now, they, they have a lot of eyes. Right? The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is their, the, the, the creatures, this is their, their song all day long, all night long, without ceasing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, if we read that and you might go, that sounds so boring. Be honest. It sounds boring. If that's what heaven's supposed to be like, I don't want to sing all day long the same thing over and over and over again. Be honest, you've probably had that thought. I have, right? Time and time again. But here's what that shows us. One, it's a commentary on how we do church because where we get our idea of what worship is is from how we do church. And so when we think about singing, holy, 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 we think about just standing there Holy, holy, holy. Maybe you got that whole hymn. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. If you're Baptist, early in the morning. If you're charismatic, you're not even singing this song, right? Uh, or you've got a tambourine going and some flags, you know what I mean? So it's a little more exciting, right? right? But, but we think of that and we think, that sounds so boring. That's a commentary on us. The other thing it's a commentary on is, I might not truly know the Lord, in the way that the Lord wants me to know him. Because I cannot equate my knowledge and experience of the Lord here and now in part. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, we see now in part, but then we will see in full. We can't fathom what it means to be in the presence of the Lord and to see him in full and to know him in full. We have no concept for that, but we were created for that. We were created by God for God. Right? To bring glory to God. Everything I do should be oriented around God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and, and it's never ceasing. And it's all the time, all night, who was and is and is to come. All right, we've got to press on. Verse 9. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So let's pause and go back just for a moment. So you've got the creatures worshiping, right? And whenever they give worship, then it prompts them, the elders, those 24 elders, to then fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. And then they take their crowns and they cast them before them. So, so two things here, at least one. One, the, the, elder, the, the creatures are worshiping day and night and they never cease. And as they do that, then that prompts the elders to then fall down and worship. And so if, if, the, if the creatures never stop and they're continually singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and that prompts the elders to continue to worship, can you see the picture of what's going on in in the throne of heaven? Worship. And one group worshiping prompts another group to worship. Can you imagine what it would look like if there was more freedom for us when we gathered to worship? Because I watch from the back sometimes, and again, not in a creepy way, like I'm not going, who's here, who's not here? Oh, what are they doing? What are they dealing with today? No, no, I'm watching going, Lord, what are you doing among us today? And, and sometimes I'm praying, God, would you, would you help us to, to see what you want us to see? I'm, I'm asking us to, uh, Lord, help us to, to, to experience the presence of your spirit in a way that, that we're not currently experiencing, right? I'm, I'm, I'm doing those kind of things, but I see somebody, when I see somebody raise their hand, then I, I see somebody else near them go, oh yeah, I'm going, oh yeah, I know what just happened there, right? Likely what just happened is someone felt free and bold, and they went up. And then someone else nearby goes, if they can do it, I can do it. And, and, and it's like, if I'm singing, right? If I'm singing and it's real quiet and I'm exposed, there's just one of me singing, unless I'm just that personality that doesn't care, right? There's one of me singing. Well, if one will sing, then the others will sing. Worship produces worship. Worship encourages worship. And the opposite is true as well. But I gotta keep moving. That's a sermon for another day. And so they keep worshiping and the elders are casting their crowns. So here's how they worship, right? The elders, they, they fall down and they prostrate themselves before the Lord. Why? Because oftentimes posture, physical outward posture, reflects inward posture. I guarantee you, if we find ourselves standing before the throne of God, we will not be doing this. One, we may not even have pockets anyway, right? <laughs> We won't be doing this because this is not how someone finding themselves in the presence of God worships when they come face to face with God. You just don't. But now we see in part and then we will see in full. And then they take their crowns and they cast them before him. Why? Because it doesn't, it doesn't matter that they're kings and rulers. They're in the presence of the king of kings. And so all authority submits to God. All right, in verse 11, here's what the elders cry out. Worthy are you, Lord, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why is he worthy to receive glory and honor and power for? Because you created all things, and by, you will they, by your will they existed and were created, 
everything was created by God and for God, for His glory. Where should my life be oriented? But around the Lord. The posture of the people of God toward God is worship of God. I was not created or designed to live my life for myself. Now I do it all the time, and it's sin. And it is an affront to the very glory of God. God did not create me to bring glory to myself. God is not impressed with my skills or my ability or my righteousness. God is impressed with his son and his righteousness. And when I'm in his son, I have a righteousness given to me that I never earned and never could earn and that I can never pay back. I owe God an immense debt that I can never pay and I'm never asked to live in such a way as to pay it back. If I live in a way to try to pay back the debt I owe to God, I will live a life that will continuously fall short. Can't. No way you can pay God back. It's an unpayable debt. He never asked me to pay it back. But I was created to know God, to be known by God, to bring Him glory in all that I do. And so as John is writing this, and as he starts this picture of what's happening in heaven and how that's going to impact what happens on earth, it starts with the vision of God is sovereign. He is surrounded by creatures that worship him day and night. The Lord sits enthroned on heaven. He does as he pleases, one of the psalmists would say. If I'm going to press on and persevere in the face of persecution or pressure or suffering or sickness or disease and continue to live faithfully obedient to God, I must have a constantly renewed and accurate vision of who God is. Not one that I've contracted for myself to say, I can serve this kind of God, but not that one. I start with God. And what God has done for us is what we could never do for ourselves when he sent Christ to die in the place of rebellious creatures, creatures made for his glory who were seeking to live for their own glory. He sent Christ to die for sinners. Paul says in 1 Timothy, this is a trustworthy statement, Christ Jesus came to die for sinners. And then Paul says, and I'm the first among them. Christ Jesus came to die for sinners. We all find ourselves in that boat, standing before God, on our own merit, sinners. And, and, and standing on my own merit, I will be condemned by God because I have nothing to offer him as a creature who's in rebellion against him, as a creature who, who thinks that I can offer something to the God of heaven. He lacks nothing, he needs nothing from me, his creation. And yet what he did in his grace and his love is he extended mercy to those who were in rebellion. By doing what we could not do in Jesus' life and his death, he lived this perfectly obedient life to, to God. He died in the place of sinners. He rose from the dead three days later to a new type of life. And the invitation is, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that invitation remains this morning. Some of you have already trusted in Christ, and so as we move to respond by, by celebrating communion together, you're celebrating what God has done for you on behalf of Christ as you take that bread. You're remembering his body broken for you. He stood in your place. He was hanging on the cross, not because he was guilty, but you were. I am, right? 
and as you drink this juice, and it is juice, by the way, um, you, you are representing the blood of Christ spilled, the blood that started this new covenant, which enables us to have the Spirit of God, to have life from God, so that we can know God and obey God, this new life that He gives, this eternal life. And for those of you who, who do not call yourselves Christians or you would not say I've trusted in Christ, this morning that invitation is available. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And the weariness and the heavy ladenness is, is what Jesus is describing as what it takes when, we, when we're trying to live in obedience to God in our own strength. It's wearisome. And it's a heavy burden. And he says, take my yoke. My yoke is easy. My yoke is light. Right? He, he's not calling us to obey to be accepted. He's calling us, we obey because we have been accepted. So some of you, you got the order wrong. And maybe this morning God's showing you that to where, hey, you've been trying to obey me in order for me to be pleased with you. I will never be pleased with your obedience outside of Christ's obedience. And then when we entrust ourselves by believing in Christ's obedience on our behalf, his death and his resurrection, then the obedience I live out is just simply a response to the grace of God. And so if that's something you trust in this short, morning, just a, a minute or two in response together from one of the songs we sang earlier. You love your fears never easy. Father, we sing of your faithfulness and we sing of your, your goodness towards us and we have partaken in the table that reminds us of your grace and your mercy extended towards us. God, give us a renewed vision of who you are, an accurate one. Help us to see you more clearly and let that change the way we then live and the way we continue to live. Because God, you are worthy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Now depart from here as people who have that stuck in your craw. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. See you next week.